You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul, Volume 2, translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem, and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 2, entitled Laughing and Weeping, given on the 3rd of February, 1910. In a series of lectures on spiritual scientific facts, it might well appear to some people as if the subject to be discussed today were a matter of little importance. But that is just what can often be called a failing in the kind of presentations that take their way into higher realms of existence, that there is a neglect of things belonging to immediate everyday realities. When lectures set out to deal with the eternal nature of life or its finality, with the highest capacities of the soul and weighty matters of the evolution of the world and of humankind, and perhaps even more exalted things still, people are generally happy not to get involved in such apparently commonplace matters as those we are to examine today. But everyone who endeavors to reach the realms of spiritual life along the path described in these lectures will become more and more convinced that to advance quietly step by step from the familiar to the less familiar is a very healthy approach. Besides, you will know from many examples that the most outstanding minds, in fact human consciousness altogether, have regarded laughter and tears by no means as merely commonplace. After all, the consciousness that is at work in legends and the great traditions of humankind so often much wiser than single individual consciousness, has given the great Zarathustra, who became so immensely important for Eastern culture, the famous Zarathustra smile, and the consciousness of legends sees a special significance in the fact that this great man came smiling into the world. And out of a profound understanding of world history, we are told further that in response to this smile, all creatures on earth rejoiced, while all the evil spirits and adversaries on earth fled away. If we now pass on from the kind of consciousness at work in traditional legends to the works of an outstanding individual, we have good reason to remember the figure of Faust, into whom Goethe put so many of his own feelings and ideas. When Faust, despairing of all existence, comes near to killing himself, he hears the Easter bells ring out and cries, Tears spring forth, the earth holds me again. Goethe, the poet, uses tears here as a symbol of the state of soul which enables Faust, after experiencing the most bitter despair, to find his way back into the world. This brings home to us, if we care to think about it, that laughter and tears are actually related to meaningful things. But you may well believe that 
it is easier to speculate on the nature of spirit than to look for the spirit where it manifests in the world immediately around us. And we can find the spirit, the human spirit to start with, in its actual being, precisely in the soul expressions that we call laughing and weeping. We can understand them only if we regard them as expressions of a person's inner spiritual life. But in order to do this, we have not only to accept an inner spiritual being, but understand what it is. All the lectures in our present winter series have been devoted to doing just this. Therefore, we need give only a brief indication of the being of man as seen by spiritual science. For if we are to understand laughing and weeping, we have to place them on this foundation. We have seen that human beings, from the point of view of their whole being, consist of a physical body which they have in common with the whole mineral realm, an etheric body which they have in common with everything that is of the nature of plants, and also an astral body which they have in common with the animal kingdom, and which is the bearer of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, terror and amazement and also of all the ideas which appear and fade again in our soul life from awakening until going to sleep. Human beings consist in the first place of these three outer sheaths, and these form an outer covering for the human ego, by means of which human beings will become the crown of earthly creation. This ego sets to work on the life of the soul consisting of the three members, the sentient soul, the lowest member, the rational or the perceptive soul, which is the next one, and the third one, the consciousness soul. And we have seen how the ego works to bring human beings ever nearer to perfection. What is this whole activity of the ego within the human soul based on? Let us look at various ways the ego expresses itself. Suppose that the ego, this deepest center of our spiritual life, encounters some object or being in the outer world. The ego does not remain indifferent to it, but expresses itself in a particular way. It has an experience in the soul, one way or the other, according to whether the encounter pleases it or displeases it. The ego may exult at some occurrence, or it may be plunged into deepest sadness, It may recoil in terror, or it may lovingly contemplate or embrace the source of the event. Or it can have the inner experience of understanding or not understanding whatever is involved. From our observations of the ego's activities between waking and sleeping, we can see how it tries to bring itself into harmony with the outer world. If a particular object pleases it, and we have the feeling of being warmed by it, then a bond is formed between us and the object, a part of us wraps itself around it. Basically, this is what we do with our whole environment. Our entire waking life, as regards our inner soul processes, appears to us as the creation of a harmony between our ego and the rest of the world. The experiences that come to us through the objects and beings in the outer world and are reflected in what goes on in our soul life work not only on the three members of our soul, where the ego dwells, but also on the astral, etheric and physical body. We have already given examples 
of how the relation established by the ego between itself and any object or being not only stirs the emotions of the astral body and brings change into the currents and movements of the etheric body, but also affects the physical body. Who has not noticed that people will turn pale when they experience something that frightens them? This means that the relationship formed by the ego between itself and the thing that frightens it has had an effect right into the physical body and has brought a different movement into the blood than it normally has. The blood withdraws, so to speak, from the outer extremities so that the person turns pale. Another especially characteristic example is the blush of shame. When we feel that our relationship with someone in our environment is such that we would like to disappear for a moment, the blood mounts to our face. Here we have two examples of a definite influence on the blood caused by the ego's relation to the outer world. Many other examples could be given of how the ego expresses itself in the astral, etheric and physical bodies. The ego's search for harmony or for a certain relationship between itself and the environment can lead to various specific consequences. In some cases we may feel that we have found the right position the ego should have regarding the object or being. Even if we are afraid of someone and have good reason for it, the ego may feel, if it gets the chance to think properly about it afterward, that even this feeling of fear provided a harmonious relationship with the environment. The ego feels especially in tune with its environment. If it has been trying to understand one or another thing in the outer world and succeeds, then it feels united with these things, as though it had gone out of itself and immersed itself in them, which brings a feeling of conviction that the connection is a right one. Or it may be that the ego lives with other people in an affectionate relationship then it feels happy and satisfied that there is an harmonious relationship between itself and the outer world. These feelings of contentment starting in the ego are then passed on to its sheaths. It may happen, however, that there is an occasion when the ego fails to create this harmony, that is, it fails to achieve the kind of relationship generally accepted as normal the ego could then find itself in a peculiar position. Suppose the ego encounters something it cannot understand and therefore cannot find a reason that would justify its existence. It tries in vain to form a relationship to it, yet it has to take up a definite position with regard to it. Let's take a concrete example. We encounter something which we do not want to understand because it does not seem worth our while giving our attention to it, as we feel that if we were to go into the matter thoroughly, we would have to devote too much thought and effort to it. In such a case, we have to set up a sort of barrier against it so as to keep ourselves free of it. We want to find ourselves, but we do so this time not by immersing ourselves in the thing outside, but by withdrawing our forces from it and by raising ourselves above it, thus enhancing our self-awareness. The feeling that then comes over us is one of liberation, 
Our ego feels it would lose something if it were to immerse itself in the other thing and that it has to consolidate its forces. When this occurs, clairvoyant observation sees the ego withdrawing the astral body, as it were, from the impressions which could be made on it by the environment or the other being. An impression will, of course, be made on our physical body, unless we close our eyes or stop up our ears. But because we have less control over our physical body than our astral body, we withdraw our astral body for a moment from our physical body and also from our etheric body, thus protecting it from the reach of the other being. This withdrawal of the astral body, which would otherwise expend its energies in the physical body to keep its forces together, appears to clairvoyant observation as though the astral body were expanding. When it is liberated like this, it spreads out, as it were. When we raise ourselves above another being, we make our astral body expand like elastic and go slack, whereas it is normally in a state of tension. By doing this, we liberate ourselves from a bond of any kind with the other being. We withdraw into ourselves, as it were, and raise ourselves above the whole situation. And because everything that happens in the astral body comes to expression in the physical, the physical expression of this expansion of the astral body is laughing or smiling. Every time we laugh or smile in this sort of situation, it is connected with an elastic expansion of the astral body. Accordingly, the combination of an expansion of the astral body and laughter or smiling indicates that we are raising ourselves above what is happening around us because we do not want to apply our understanding to it and from our standpoint are right not to do so. So, when it comes to it, anything we are not intending to understand will cause an expansion of our astral body and give rise to laughter. Satirical papers have been in the habit of depicting public figures with huge heads and tiny bodies which is a grotesque way of expressing the significance of these people for their time. Any attempt to apply our reason to it would be futile, for there is no principle according to which such a huge head would be joined to such a tiny body. Applying our reason to it would be a waste of energy and mental power. The only satisfying thing is to raise ourselves above the object, in this case above the impression it makes on our physical body, and becomes free in our ego and expand our astral body. For what the ego experiences is based, excuse me, is passed on in the first place to the astral body, and the corresponding physiognomical expression is laughter. It may happen, however, that we cannot find the relationship to our environment that our soul needs. Suppose that for some time we have loved someone who is not only closely associated with our daily life, but whose very presence is indispensable to our inner life. Then this person is snatched away from us for a time. And with the loss of the person, a part of our soul life falls away. A bond between ourselves and a being in the outer world is broken. Because of the attachment that has arisen through this relationship, the soul is justified in going in search of this bond. Something has been torn out of the ego. 
and the effect on the ego is passed on to the astral body. Now, because the astral body cannot find what it it is looking for, it contracts, or more explicitly, the ego compresses the astral body. This can always be clairvoyantly observed when a person is grieving over a loss. And because the ego has partly withdrawn, it compresses the astral body. Just as the expanded astral body loses tension and creates in the physical body the physiognomical expression of laughter or smiling, a contracted astral body penetrates more deeply into all the forces of the physical body and contracts it too. And the physiognomical expression of this series of contractions, first of the ego, then of the astral, and then of the physical body, is the shedding of tears. The astral body, having, as it were, been left with gaps and wanting to fill them by contracting, draws in substance from its environment. And in so doing, it compresses the physical body and squeezes out the latter's substances in the form of tears. So what do tears also indicate? In its grief, the ego has lost something. It contracts because it has become depleted and feels its selfhood less strongly than before, for its unique strength is all the stronger the richer the experiences are that it gathers from the outer world. Not only do we give something to those we love, but enrich our own souls by doing so. And when the experiences love gives us are torn from us and the astral body receives gaps and and contracts, it tries to regain the forces it has lost by putting pressure on itself. It tries to counteract its depletion by making itself richer again. The tears are not merely an outflow. They are a sort of compensation for the depleted ego. Whereas the ego formerly felt enriched by the outer world, now it feels strengthened in it. The, see, let me read that again. Whereas the ego formerly felt enriched by the outer world, now it feels strengthened in that it produces the tears itself. What people lose in ego consciousness on a spiritual level, they try to compensate for by spurring themselves on to an act of producing something in themselves, the shedding of tears. If an ego that has suffered a loss Let's go as far as shedding tears. These tears, in raising the ego's consciousness to an awareness of its loss, give it a certain subconscious feeling of well-being. One could even say that tears are, in a way, an incentive to a kind of inner wallowing. But it does restore a balance. You will all know of people who, when they are in the depths of misery, find comfort in tears. You will know, too, that people who cannot cry find it much harder to bear sorrow than do the kind of people who can easily find comfort in tears. So we see that it is the ego, the center of the human being, that cannot achieve a satisfying relationship with the outer world, and then either raises itself to inner freedom through laughter, or submerges itself in order to gain strength after a deprivation through tears. Therefore, we will find it comprehensible that the having of an ego, which is what makes us human, is from a certain point of view a requisite for laughter and tears. 
When we observe a newborn baby, we find that it can neither laugh nor cry. Real laughing and crying begin only around the 36th to 40th day of life. The reason for this is that although it is already clear that an ego from a previous incarnation is living in the child, the ego does not begin to work formatively in the child in the first days. It is not immediately open to relating to the outer world. When human beings come into the world, then all that they are and everything to do with them comes from two directions. From one side they get the attributes and active elements acquired from father and mother, grandparents and so on, namely the qualities and abilities in the line of heredity. But all this is worked on by the individuality, by the person's ego, that goes from one life to another and brings into it its own soul qualities. When a child enters existence at birth, we see at first only an undefined physiognomy, and quite undefined also are the talents, capacities and special characteristics which will emerge later on. But presently we see the creatively working ego, with the power of development it has brought from previous lives, actively making the child's unformed features more and more clearly defined and modifying what has been given in the line of heredity. We see the inherited qualities blending with those which pass from one incarnation to another. You will be able to find more about the growth and development of the human being in my recently published book titled Occult Science and Outline, Readers Aside, also known as an outline of esoteric science, end of Readers Aside, in the earlier chapters of which these things are discussed in a way suitable for the present-day mind. We have seen how the ego works its way to being expressed in the child, but it is some time before the ego can begin to transform body and soul. Therefore, we enter existence showing in the first few days only our inherited characteristics. The ego, meanwhile, remains deeply hidden, waiting until it can impress on the undefined physiognomy the qualities it has brought from previous lives from which it will elaborate. Read that again. The ego, meanwhile, remains deeply hidden, waiting until it can impress on the undefined physiognomy the qualities it has brought from previous lives which it will elaborate day by day year by year. Before the child has acquired the individual character that is uniquely its own, it is impossible that its ego can give vent to any relationship with regard to the outer world by way of laughing or crying. For this requires the ego, the most individual part of us, as it seeks for a connecting link to bring it into harmony with its environment. Only the ego can express itself in laughter or tears. For when we consider laughing and weeping, we are dealing with the deepest and the most and most inward spirituality in man. Those who refuse to admit any real difference between man and animal will of course find analogies to laughing and weeping in the animal kingdom. But anyone who understands these things properly will agree with the German poet who says that the closest an animal gets to weeping is howling, and the nearest thing in the animal world to laughing is grinning. There is a deep truth in this. 
and it can be put into words by saying that animals do not rise to egohood, such as resides in a human being, but are ruled by laws which appear to resemble human selfhood, but which are so implanted in them that they remain outside them throughout life. Animals cannot achieve individuality. This essential difference between human beings and animals has already been mentioned here, and it was said that what interests us in animals is comprised in the species to which it belongs. Ask yourself whether what interests you in a particular species of animal is spread out over such a great diversity of characteristics as you would find between human parents and their offspring. The main characteristics of an animal are those of its type or species. In the human realm, each person has their own individual characteristics, their own biography, and this is what concerns us, whereas in animals it is the history of the species. Certainly there are many dog owners and cat owners who declare that they could write a biography of their pet, and I even knew a schoolmaster who regularly set his pupils the exercise of writing the biography of a pen. The fact that a thought can be applied to anything is not the point. What matters is that our understanding should work in its way through to the essential nature of a being or a subject matter. Individual biography is significant for human beings, but not for animals. For the essential part of human beings is the individuality which moves on and develops from life to life, whereas in animals it is the species that lives on and evolves. Where there is reluctance to admit to the importance of the biographical element, this is not because the significance that attaches to it is any less than is given to natural scientific laws belonging to the outer world, but because the person who refuses to admit it cannot feel the importance of phenomena of any kind. In spiritual science, the enduring element that informs the species is called the animal's group soul or group ego, and we regard it as a reality. Therefore we speak of the animal having its ego outside itself. We do not deny the animal an ego, but we speak of the group ego which directs the animal from outside. With human beings, on the other hand, we speak of an individual I entering into their innermost part and directing the individuality at the core of their being in such a way that they can enter into a personal relationship with the beings of their environment. The relationships that animals establish under the guidance of the external group ego have a general character. What one or another animal likes or dislikes, hates or fears is typical of its species, modified only in minor details among domestic animals or those who live with humans. In human beings, what love and hate, fear, sympathy and antipathy signify for them goes through a development in them from incarnation to incarnation in an individual way. Therefore, the special, special situation in which human beings liberate themselves from something in their environment and express their relief physiognomically in laughter, or in the opposite case, where we look for a relationship we cannot find and express our frustration in tears. All this is something of which only human beings are capable. 
And the more the individuality of the child makes itself evident above the level of an animal, the more it shows its humanity through laughter and tears. If we want to take a true view of life, we must not attach primary importance to such crude facts as the similarities of bone and muscle in man and animal, or to a possible resemblance between the other organs. We must look in subtler aspects of human nature for the characteristics that are the essential evidence of man's status as the highest of earthly beings. If anyone cannot see the significance of such facts as laughter and tears for bringing out the difference between human beings and animals, one has to say, there is no helping a person who is not able to rise to the facts that matter most in coming to understand man in his spirituality. The facts we are now considering in the light of spiritual science can of course illumine certain natural scientific findings, but only if the facts are put back into the context of a great spiritual scientific whole. There is something else that is connected with laughing and weeping in human beings. If we observe a person laughing or crying, we shall find that not only is this expressed in the physiognomy of the face, but that also a change in the breathing occurs. When sorrow goes as deep as tears, and this sorrow leads to such compression of the astral body that the physical body is also compressed, the in-breathing becomes shorter and shorter and the out-breathing longer. With laughter the opposite occurs. The in-breathing is long and the out-breathing short. When a person's astral body goes slack and the physical body does too, right into its finer details, the situation resembles that of a hollow space from which all the air is pumped out. Then immediately the outside air rushes in. A kind of liberation of the outer corporeality occurs in laughter and then a long breath of air is drawn in. When we cry, the opposite happens. We compress the astral body and with it the physical body, and the compression causes an out-breathing in one long stretch. Here again we have an instance of the connection between the bodily expression of a manifestation of life and a soul expression brought about by the presence of the ego. If we take these physiological facts, they will illumine in a wonderful way a spiritual scientific fact which is recorded in a picture in the ancient religious records of humankind. As a rule, spiritual scientific facts come to expression in pictures. Let us remember the significant passage in the Old Testament which presents man being raised to his present level of humanity when Yahweh, or Jehovah, breathes into him the living breath, thus making him a living soul. This is the moment when the birth of selfhood is impressed on our attention. In the Old Testament, the functioning of the breathing process is shown as the expression of the actual egohood of man, and breathing is brought into relation with man's inner soul forces. If we recall that laughing and weeping are a unique expression of the human ego, then we appreciate the intimate connection between our breathing process and our inner ensouling. And then, in the light of such knowledge, we come to regard the ancient religious records with the humility engendered in us by this deep and true understanding. For spiritual science, these records are not necessary. 
even if they were destroyed in a great catastrophe, spiritual scientific research has the means of discovering for itself what is at the root of them. But when the facts are found, and later the same facts are found to be unmistakably rendered in the pictorial language of the old records, our understanding of these records is greatly enhanced. We feel that they must originate from seers who knew what the spiritual researcher discovers, and spiritual vision converses with spiritual vision across the millennia. And from this knowledge we acquire the right attitude toward these records. When we hear tell of how God breathed his own living breath into man, whereby man became an ego that could find itself, we can see precisely in such a study as this one as this one on laughing and weeping, how true to human nature is this symbolically portrayed event. I shall refer to only a few more particulars, otherwise it would take us too far. Someone might say to me, You have started at the wrong end. You ought to have started with the external facts. You should look for the spiritual element where it appears purely as a natural occurrence, for example, when a person is tickled. That is the most basic example of laughing. How do you reconcile that with all your fantasies about the expansion of the astral body and so forth? Oh, this is a wonderful example of the expansion of the astral body, for everything is present here that has been described as a characteristic, though at a lower pitch. If someone is tickled on the sole of their foot, it is something they cannot feel involved in with their reasoning powers. They do not like it and reject it. They would only understand it if they were to tickle themselves, but then they would not laugh because they would know who was doing it. When someone else tickles them, however, there is something incomprehensible about it. Then the ego rises up and tries to liberate both itself and the astral body. This freeing of the astral body from inappropriate contact expresses itself in laughter that is not motivated. It is par excellence a releasing of the ego on a basic level from the attack made on it by being tickled on the foot when there is no reasonable explanation for it. Laughing at a joke or at something that is funny is on the same level as this. We laugh at a joke because laughter brings us into the right relationship with it. Things are brought together in a joke which in serious life cannot combine. For if they could be grasped logically, they would not be funny. A joke sets up relationships which, unless we happen to be fools, do not call for direct understanding, but only for us to go so far as to combine the things in a certain play of the mind. Directly we feel we have got the trick, we free ourselves and rise above the content of the joke. This freeing oneself and raising oneself above something is always found when laughing occurs. Just as looking for something one cannot find, and therefore contracting within oneself, is always the cause of weeping. But this kind of relationship to the outer world may or may not be justified. It may be fitting that we want to liberate ourselves by laughing, or alternatively our particular mental disposition may make us either unwilling or unable to understand what is going on then our laughter will not arise out of the situation, but out of our own limitations. This is always the case when an immature person laughs at someone else because he cannot understand him. 
If an immature human being fails to find in the other person the ordinary, limited qualities he expects to find, he does not think it necessary to apply understanding. So he tries to free himself from it, perhaps just because he does not want to understand it. This can easily lead to the habit of becoming free of everything by laughing. In fact, certain people often get like this. They laugh or grouse about everything. They do not want to understand anything, so they puff up their astral body and are forever laughing. Basically, it is the same thing. It is just that, on the one hand, it may seem justified not to want to approach it with understanding, and on the other hand, it can be unjustified. It can also happen that someone makes calculated use of this form of expression. Consider a speaker who calculates the effect of his words, excuse me, the effect his words will have on his bearers, on his hearers, excuse me, for instance, how to get them to agree with him and so on. He obviously reckons with the way people can experience things. Now and then it might be justified for him to refer to things so trivial or so far below the sphere of understanding of some of his listeners that he can risk describing them so that the minds of his listeners will not connect very strongly with the subject in question. In fact, by doing this, in fact, by doing so, this will be just the thing to liberate them from the trivialities that surround the subject, which he really wants to get them to understand. Here the speaker will be justified in assuming that his listeners share his attitude of rejecting the matters in question. But there are also speakers who always want to get the laugh on their side. I have heard them saying, If I am to win, I must stimulate laughter, so that I will have the laughs on my side. For if I have, I have as good as won. This may, however, spring from inner dishonesty. For anyone who appeals to laughter is evoking a response which is intended to lift his audience above themselves. But if he presents the matter in such a way that his hearers need not try to understand it, but can laugh at it only because it has been brought down to a level where it appears trivial, then he is counting on human vanity, even though his listeners may not be aware of it. There is also a certain way, too, in which it is possible to win people over, by stirring in them the feelings of comfort and well-being, which I have described as being associated with tears. If people are brought to imagine that they have lost something, they may then long for this thing they cannot find. Then by contracting their ego, they feel their selfhood strengthened. An appeal of this kind to the emotions is then often nothing more than an appeal to human selfishness. All these things can therefore be grossly misused, for emotion and grief, mocking and scorn, accompanied by laughing and crying, are all connected with strengthening or liberating the ego, and so with human egohood, with egoism. When therefore such appeals are made, it may be that selfishness is being addressed, and selfishness can also destroy the bonds between man and man. In other lectures we have seen that the ego not only works on the sentient soul, the rational soul, and the consciousness soul, but that this work is intended also to make the ego stronger and more rounded. So we shall readily understand that laughing and weeping can in a certain respect be a means of education.
It is no wonder, then, that we rank among the great sources of education for human development those dramatic creations, the effect of which is to stimulate the soul forces that find expression in laughter and tears. Tragedy presents us with a spectacle that does indeed contract the astral body and so impart firmness and inner cohesion to the ego. Comedy, on the other hand, expands the astral body inasmuch as people raise themselves above follies and coincidences, and it thereby encourages the liberation of the ego. We can see now the connection there is with human development when tragedies and comedies are brought before us in artistic form. Those who can observe human nature with regard to the smallest things will find that everyday experiences can also lead to an understanding of the greatest actualities. The sort of things that are presented to us in art, for instance, show us that in human nature there is a kind of pendulum that has to swing to and fro between what leads on the one hand to tears and on the other to laughter. The ego can progress only by being in movement. If the pendulum were at rest, the ego would not be able to increase or develop and would succumb to inner death. It is the right thing for human development that the ego should be able on the one side to free itself through laughter and on the other side to search for itself, leading to tears. But between two polarities there has to be a balance. Therefore the ego will only find completion when it has found a a balance, and never in swinging to and fro between exaltation and despair. It will only be able to find itself at the moment of rest, which can lead just as well in the one direction as in the other. Human beings must become progressively the steerers and directors of their own lives. If we really understand laughing and weeping, we shall know they are manifestations of the Spirit and realize that human beings virtually become transparent when we see them making use of laughter as an outer expression of an inner feeling of liberation and expressing with the help of tears an inner feeling of being strengthened after the ego has suffered a loss in the external world. Laughing and weeping are two opposite poles by means of which the world's secrets are made manifest. If we ask what a laugh expressed by the human face actually is, we now know that it is the Spirit telling us that here we see human beings endeavoring to find liberation from being entangled in things unworthy of them and raising themselves with a smile above the things they may never allow to enslave them. And tears in our eyes are telling us of the spiritual fact that even when people feel that the thread is broken linking them to another living creature, they are still endeavoring to find the bridge. And when they strengthen their ego through tears, they are emphatically saying, I belong to the world, and the world belongs to me, for I cannot bear being torn away from it. And now we understand how this liberation, rising above everything base and evil, found its justified expression in Zarathustra, in the Zarathustra smile. And how right people were to say that all the creatures on earth rejoiced when he smiled and all the evil spirits fled. For that smile was the symbol in world history of the elevation of the free being of the ego above everything in which it must not get entangled. 
If, however, the ego should come to the point of saying that existence is worthless and that it does not want to have anything more to do with the world, yet the strength should spring up in the soul which brings to consciousness the affirmation, the world belongs to me and I belong to the world, then this feeling is rendered by Goethe in the words, quote, tears flow forth, the earth holds me again, close quote. These words give voice to a conviction that we cannot allow ourselves to be excluded from all that the earth signifies, and that with our tears we assert our intimate connection with it when it seems taken from us. This finds its justification in the deep secrets of the world. Tears announce our solidarity with the world, and the smile on our face shows our liberation from everything that is below us. The end of Lecture 2